thank you, everyone. So welcome to this professionalism session. Um, Dave is a principal and consulting actuary at Milliman, and today he'll talk about fairness, and it's specifically towards product development and pricing. So without further ado, so we don't run late, um, I welcome Dave to the stage. Okay, afternoon everyone. Uh, this is not my usual sort of topic. Uh, I'm probably not the best person to be talking about it. I'm sure that many of you here, you've had better, longer, more relevant experiences than me. But this really is a result of personally struggling with some of these questions and trying to put together various pieces. And this will be a bit of a, a tour through what I've been thinking about on the matter over the, the last year. I'm hoping to raise awareness of some areas that are found tricky. I'm actually hoping to decrease your own confidence in how consistent your views might be with others around what is actually fair. And at the end, I'm, I'm actually hoping we might decide to take either less responsibility for fairness or at least make sure we get some proper guidance on the matter. So let, let's see how we do through that. Um, so when you think about a fair, you think of fun things and rides and bright lights and maybe a little bit of excitement and deep down you, you know you're safe but actually there's a little bit of adrenaline. And I guess my concern is when we look at fairness from an insurance or actuarial or product perspective, maybe we're having a little bit too much fun and deep down we should actually be terrified of what we're getting ourselves uh, into. So a definition of fair is the impartial and just treatment of behavior without favoritism or discrimination. Uh, and, and that really is the angle that I'm gonna be talking on at the moment. And my big concern is that you can easily end up on your own without guidance, without support, and that's not really a whole lot of fun and, and can be quite uh, a terrifying place to be. So there, there's a mix of some, some text-heavy slides. I must apologize to Tanya. Tanya, when she reviewed my slides, said, wow, that's great, really simple. And then I added in a whole lot of detail, messy graphs and numbers that you probably can't see. Uh, the APN 106 and APN 403 in the new versions are actually very, very new. And there's a lot in there about fairness and a lot there that I've been, been struggling with. So the Insurance Act itself doesn't require the head of actual function to provide a view on TCF or fairness. Although interestingly, they, they can request that you provide a, a view. So again, in my own experience as a consulting actually, giving a view or proving a product, um, not addressing issues of fairness, to know in the background that there's a risk, the regulator could down the line ask me, okay, so is it fair? And so, by the way, yeah, so no, it's not. Meanwhile, I've actually approved a product. So I think a lot of these things do come in through the, the back door. Now, some of the mentions in APN 106 on a, a with profits basis are, are pretty well understood, and there's hundreds of years of, of, of writings on the matter. Allocation of profits for with profits business, transfer of policyholders between, between funds and insurers. And to my mind, those are not simple, but relatively well understood, and there are, are case studies and some guidance on that. In fact, some of these, there are entire guidance notes focused just on these, these issues. Um, there are also references to reasonable benefit expectations, uh, the, the usual stuff around uh, discretionary bonuses, but also maybe more reaching than many of you will realize until you actually read it. Uh, discretion for linked business and reviewable risk premium rates are included in the view of reasonable benefit expectations for us as actuaries working in this space. And of course, now that APN 106 and APN 403 are the same thing, 
all of these requirements, which many of them long applied to life insurance, now apply in the non-life space as well. And that's actually where a large portion of my discomfort has come, as I'll show you in a moment. So fairness, and in the previous session on microinsurance, we spoke a little bit about value for money. We are going to talk about value for money as well, but I would like just to touch on some policy terms and conditions and challenges that have been around. Now, I'm choosing some examples very specifically, not from South Africa, so nobody gets too unhappy with me. Uh, but the sorts of ideas are familiar, and we've had plenty of these hassles as well, where the terms and conditions as we have written them as insurance providers have been uh, pretty unfair and have been interpreted pretty unfairly. This is the case where somebody had insurance against their luggage. The luggage was here, they weren't looking at it while they're getting directions, and the insurer tried to not pay out because it was unattended. You know, so we, we can laugh, and I'm very happy that we are laughing at this, right? But, you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, this is, yeah, well, they, they should have taken responsibility. That's an uninsurable risk. There's moral hazards we can't do. But I think now we accept that is a bit ridiculous. And maybe in South Africa there have been more issues around non-disclosure for life insurance and having claims utterly unrelated to that non-disclosure, but still uh, uh, certainly a lot of discussion on, on the radio amongst other places on whether those claims should be paid or not. Um, also in Australia, uh, a claim on a no-fault uh, comprehensive motor policy was initially, I think it was overturned, it was initially repudiated because the insured hadn't taken all necessary precautions to avoid the incident, which I guess talks to what the policyholder thought they'd purchased when it was a no-fault policy. Some of the issues that I've come up with in the last year, the unilateral ability to terminate a policy, signing off on premium adequacy for a, a, a less known area of experience, not quite sure in the rates. To say that the insurer can just terminate the policies when they need to is fantastic. It's a huge, big safety net. We don't have to worry about solvency. If things go very, very badly, we can just terminate all the policies. So it's great from a prudential perspective, from a premium adequacy perspective. Maybe less so from a policyholder expectations perspective. The ability to change pricing based on, based on changes in expected risk. Now, outside of a premium guarantee period, this wouldn't be particularly unusual. This would be fairly common. In the non-life or short-term insurance or PNC space, uh, it's expected that your policy will be repriced if the risk changes or, or your, your risk changes. One of the questions I asked in my survey, which I'll touch on later, is whether it would be reasonable to terminate policies or change pricing if there were a pandemic. So not just a small change, but a, a, a fantastic change. Um, again, pandemic risk on the life insurance space is quite a tricky risk to manage. And we can just say, well, we'll terminate all policies if need be, but like, is that really okay? Um, in the US, long-term care products have been burning very badly for a long time. And one of the reasons is that lapse rates have been lower than expected at the same time that mortality, morbidity, or morbidity, I guess, experience has been worse than expected. Now, it might be reasonable to want to reprice the products based on the illness experience being worse than expected. But the fact that your policyholders are actually staying with their policy for longer than you'd hoped, and therefore it's costing you more, is that a reasonable reason to reprice the product for? In the US where it's, they have a far more uh, approach of having to uh, file your premium rates, and no matter what you have the contractual ability to do, you need to get approval from many regulators in many states around your ability to change premiums. And oftentimes, the regulators have said no because somebody's actually abiding by the terms of your policy and hanging around for longer. You don't get to change the, the prices for them. Um, and then we know that if things go very, very poorly, there'll be a range of ways where we can, and certain insurers have in the past, 
increased premium rates to allow for that worse than expected experience. But what if the experience is better than expected? There have also been cases of insurers offering greater benefits back and you know, benefit enhancements to reflect the fact that they were arguably making more money than they intended. But is it a requirement? Is it necessary? And how do we deal with the asymmetry between giving uh, premium increases for worse experience but not necessarily giving a premium decrease or get a benefit for better experience? And how do you deal with different generations of policyholders where you bought the policy yesterday and then tomorrow the premium rates are reduced? Is, is that reasonable to have those, those different premium rates? Often when I talk about that, the example that people like to use is seats on an aeroplane. It is almost guaranteed that the person sitting in an otherwise equivalent seat in the aircraft as you could have paid 20 or 30 or 50 or 100% more for the ticket than you. But we're, we're mostly okay with that. So what's going on there? You can imagine a scenario where travel insurance says you may not charge people different rates, you may not price optimize. But then you have a plane ticket sold alongside travel insurance, and the plane ticket you can charge for whatever you want, but the travel insurance you're restricted in some way. So again, it's not clear why there should be such a difference between those. The idea of buying a financial service being uh, difficult to understand what you're getting, difficult to understand the cost base to get your head around is maybe true. I don't really know what the cost of running a plane is and what that seat really is worth. It's far more a question of what am I prepared to pay for that seat on a plane. And then why should we be okay with charging what somebody is prepared to pay for an insurance policy? This is the phrase in APN 106 and APN 403 that has me uh, really stumped. Actuarial justification. Now, it's been in APN 106 for a long time, but it's new for on the, the non-life side. And basically what it says is, where a distinction is made between the premiums, benefits, or other values of different policies, the head of actual function should be satisfied that the distinction is actuarially justified. So that's quite a big sentence, depending on what you take by actuarially justified. If it just means the premiums are adequate, well, we're already doing that. If that's literally all it means, why is this extra phrase in there? Um, I'll find my notes for a second. Um, in the US, the American Academy of Actuaries said that a rate is uh, fair and reasonable if it reflects differences in the expected costs of risk. So that says to me that we're looking at high-risk person versus a low-risk person, high-risk, low-risk, those with different premiums. That would be an actuarial justification for differences. Commercially justifiable could be a whole separate set of things. Uh, I could potentially charge you more and I need to charge you less based on your price sensitivity. So it might be commercially justified to charge you more because I could. Might be commercially justified to charge somebody differently through a different distribution channel. But this actuarial justification, to my mind, talks to maybe an old-fashioned idea of the word actuarial as in assessing the future risk based on past experience of those characteristics. But if that's the case, it has some uh, relatively problematic implications for certain non-life practices around price optimization. Okay, so I, some of you remember a presentation I did last year, and I very proudly put up the, the Twitter survey that I did with my seven responses. So this year I tried a bit harder. Many of you here would have received a, a semi-personalized WhatsApp, LinkedIn message, email, phone call asking you to complete the survey. And in total, I had 542 responses to the survey. So first of all, for those of you who did, thank you very much. That was a much better response than I expected. About 60 of the responses skipped as soon as asked whether they were actually or not. 
So I'm not quite sure how they managed to get the, the, the question, but they, that, that seemed to be a, 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 a step too far. And about another 130 skipped when the actual questions got hard about like, is this fair, is this reasonable? Now, to be fair, I had mostly reached out to people I knew directly. I did also post this on an actuary subreddit, skewed very much towards students. So I think we lost quite a lot of the university students at that process. And not to be unfair to university students, but I don't think that the level of study that they'd had and the exposure to the real world would have made their answers particularly useful. The staffing responses were just under half the total, and out of the 267 responses, I included all 200, well, 230 of those uh, for having answered the vast majority of the questions. Um, so a fair mix from, from around the world. Uh, in total, we had about 350 responses. Okay, the next few slides, just a little bit of early flavor around who actually answered to give a sense for whether or not this is representative. Uh, it might be representative of the people that I know uh, or representative of actuaries in general. Uh, so yes, unfortunately, still overwhelmingly male. Uh, that is the state of the profession at the moment. And the age bands, that made a lot of sense to me um, given the, the, the medium that I was using to reach out to people, um, the overall distribution of, of actuaries and people that I know, and maybe some element of people who had enough time. Clearly the 25 to 34 group doesn't really do any work, uh, <laughs> but the plus 65 crowd are, are, are busy. Uh, I did ask a, a, a long set of possible countries that you could choose. You can see there's, there's quite a long tail there, but I effectively combined those into siphoning responses, North America, mostly Canada and America, uh, the UK and Ireland, and I'm sure I've committed all sorts of political faux pas there, but I do think those markets would be maybe slightly more similar than the rest of Europe and uh, Indonesia and Hong Kong and Singapore and Lebanon, where I had a small number of responses. And most of my analysis I did on the, on the total. I did occasionally check in to see whether the siphonal responses were different, whether there were any differences in responses between different countries. Um, and broadly speaking, there weren't that many. So one of the things I'd hoped to show is how we can have very, very different views on fairness. From a country perspective, maybe the differences weren't quite as marked as I'd expected. Uh, the vast majority of respondents were actuaries or, or actual students. There were a handful of other people. Generally, the, these would have been people where I reached out to them who would have been involved in some way in the insurance sector or the financial services sector. So they should still have informed views. And no, that's not to say only actuaries can have informed views. Don't misread my, my words. Uh, uh, and what I also found interesting is that although I think about 90% of qualified actuaries viewed that fairness was important to their job, we had you know, almost a majority of people saying that they didn't have a very clear view on fairness. And working through the question, they really had to think and apply their minds to the questions individually. So I guess in some ways I do find that encouraging that people recognize they did need to apply their minds, but on something that we claim to be important to our jobs, for so half of us not to have a clear view, and it's maybe a bit uh, disconcerting. Um, those of you who did the survey would have seen I did some crude sort of A-B testing and had a question on when your birthday was at the start of the end of the year. And that was to put two different questions to you without bias. The one question was, is it your responsibility to ensure fairness? And the other was, is it your responsibility to promote fairness? And about 90% thought that it was an actuary's responsibility to promote fairness. 90% um, of actuaries agreed that it was relevant to our jobs, and about 75% of respondents thought it was an actuary's responsibility to ensure fairness. And in some ways, that makes me a bit nervous. Promoting fairness, being involved, giving your thoughts, performing the analysis, putting all the information out there, but 75% of us think that it's actually our job to ensure fairness 
inside an insurance company. That feels, frankly, like a step too far. I don't know that that is actually doable. Um, I don't know if I'm going to leave very much time for questions at the end. That's very deliberate. Uh, I don't have many answers, but that might be one where you, you want to kind of just chip in and see whether uh, you have a different view from me. Determining what is fair, I guess the good news is I'm not alone, and people generally did feel, or respondents did generally feel, that it's hard. Uh, interesting to me is that the non-actuaries in the room generally thought it was a little bit easier than the actuaries. Now, I don't know whether that's because we're not very smart, or we make more work out of things than it should be, whether perhaps just actually dealing with the intricacies and the details and the trade-offs and the challenges gives you a better sense of whether it is hard or not. Um, I grouped the questions into just simple, easy, neither, and difficult, and then did a comparison against, uh, this was sort of question nine, very, very early on in the survey, and then I made you think all through, jump to some hard hoops and challenging questions, and I asked the question again um, right towards the end. And the student actually didn't change their views much, so I haven't put it there. Qualified actuaries, after having actually think about it for a little while, did agree that maybe it was a little bit harder than they thought, but for me, the most interesting and, and maybe encouraging as an actuary is that the non-actuaries had a much bigger uh, change of heart in terms of how difficult it is, looking more a little bit like the, the rest of the actuaries in the, in, in, in the survey. So it's hard. It's not unreasonable for us to find this hard, which for me is, is pretty encouraging. Um, okay. Differences in premiums. I asked questions around what would be reasonable differences or reasonable justifications for differences in premiums. 80% thought that it would not be appropriate to use race or ethnic background to differentiate uh, on premiums. And this was universal across uh, the different markets. Between 75 and 80%, depending on which question, thought it was okay to charge differently between new and existing customers or to charge differently between distribution channels. Now, on the distribution channel one, I think there's a very clear, very obvious cost driver, cost differential, that although we may want to try to limit a, a, a channel clash, I think there's a very clear reason why you would need to charge differently. I think I may have worded the question on the new versus existing question, uh, customers poorly. What I'm worried about is a practice of charging new customers a teaser, cheap, low rate to track the business in, and then hitting them with the bait and switch 12 months down the line with a much higher rate, hoping that they don't notice and don't leave. This is a very common practice in the non-life space where we have this automatic, obvious renewal 12 months down the line. I worry, and I'm totally reading my own views into this, that the large portion of, of respondents who thought it was okay maybe thought that, well, existing customers are cheaper to get on the books. So yes, offering the existing customer a lower rate might be appropriate. Um, but we'll never know. So maybe survey 2.0, I'll try to address that. But that, to me, was, was, was interesting. 31% thought that risk factors outside of the control of the policyholder shouldn't be used. Now, it's only 31%, but this is quite a big deal. As actuaries, I feel we default to saying, if there's a statistical significance, if we, could definitely, if we can prove causation rather than just correlation, we should be allowed to differentiate on that. And in fact, if we aren't allowed to differentiate on that, the world will end. Insurance, as we know, will cease to exist. Uh, some of those comments were made in not particularly less uh, 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 strong terms with the gender discrimination rulings in the EU. The insurance market in the EU has managed just fine, thank you, without gender discrimination. 
So there's almost a third of us, you're still having maybe a slightly more social oriented view that just because it's a factor doesn't necessarily mean that we should use it. The challenge here is that if we are all permitted to use it, and you're the one lone ranger choosing not to use it because it's the right thing to do, you are at risk of uh, anti-selection and having the best risk selected away from you. Uh, I was guilty when uh, the community rating idea was introduced to medical schemes. I'm thinking, this is a disaster. How can you possibly run a medical scheme without underwriting, without age rating, without any of this? And not to say that it's been perfect success and that we don't really struggle in, in some of those schemes, but I think, frankly, it worked out a lot better, a lot easier than I'd imagined at the time. So I'm probably skewing towards that 31% that says that I feel insurance would probably be better off and society would be better off if we didn't, weren't always quite so ready to use factors to differentiate. There's a bit of a puzzle, though, because only 25% compared to the 31% in general said that we don't think gender should be used. Now, I don't want to get in a debate around gender versus sex and binary versus not and dynamic versus not, but I think here what we're having is just hopefully a small difference that I feel in general gender is something that is out of our control. And if anything, it might be worse because a lot of, of the reasons for gender to be a rating factor probably aren't intrinsic. They probably are proxies for other sorts of things. So in some ways, gender is maybe a particularly poor uh, factor to be used. Uh, so that, that, that was a, a, a question for me. Now, maybe I'll just define price optimization or dynamic uh, uh, pricing. There are probably three core elements to it. The one is charging somebody a lower rate upfront and trying to recoup your profits over the next three to five years. A very uh, familiar, obvious thing to do in the life insurance space and a, a maybe more recent, more uh, developing area in the non-life or short-term insurance space, certainly in South Africa, taking a slightly longer-term view and trying to understand who is more likely to lapse or not. Uh, the other thing would be uh, uh, looking at who is most likely to switch. And if somebody's likely to switch, then you would try to give them a slightly lower premium, try to hang on to them down to your, your marginal price. The third thing, maybe it's not quite in the same terms, but if you phone up and complain about your insurance premium, they'll probably decrease your premium. The more time you spend and you complain and moan about it, the more likely you are to get a lower premium. Again, that's probably got very little relationship to the actual risk um, that you're faced with. 75% of respondents were okay with different premiums for new and renewed policies, but again, I, I do worry that maybe they uh, uh, misread the, the question there. Interestingly, in the US, it was the opposite that the majority viewed, uh, uh, oh, sorry, beg your pardon. So the majority viewed price optimization as unfair in South Africa of respondents. Slightly the other way around in the US, but South Africa, most people thought that these ideas of price optimization are unfair. Yet in the non-life insurance space, certainly for the larger, more sophisticated insurers, this is absolutely top priority in terms of getting your pricing rights. I've heard some very disappointing stories that, you know, forget about your risk and your GLMs based on frequency and severity and hail damage, this and the other. Yeah, you maybe want to get that right. But the thing you really want to get right is understanding which of your customers you can charge a really fat margin to. That is arguably more important than risk selection. Certainly it's not unimportant. So if, as a majority, the actual profession, my sample of 350 from people that I know, feels that price optimization is unfair, how are we signing off products as heads of actual function? Or maybe with APN 403 bring brand new, these are still challenges that we're going to be seeing in the future. For me personally, this is a, a, a major, major question and concern. 
Now, I, I do a fair amount of space in the, the, the lower end of the markets, uh, credit life, credit insurance, fuel insurance, tax insurance, uh, motor add-on products. And many of those products do have relatively low or certainly not very high claim ratios. So value for money is always a question I keep coming back to, like what, what is fair? What's a fair profit market? What's a fair claim ratio? And I asked the question, again, maybe this question could have been better asked. Is it automatically fair if a product provides materially better than average value for money? And most people disagreed. But I think they probably disagreed for two different sets of reasons, which came through very much in the comments. For many of these questions, I had like 50, 60, or 70 individual comments, and I read all of them. Uh, there was quite a lot of, of, of different views in there, but I did, did read all of them. And the two reasons might be that, yes, as I was thinking, just because everybody's value for money is appalling doesn't mean if you are 1% better value for money, doesn't mean that's okay. I think we've got caught in this trap before though. So 20 years ago, we had very high surrender penalties on our life insurance savings products. And that was all okay, and maybe we looked at some of the benefits and weren't you know, madly blown away by it, but everybody was doing it. There's no real problem there. We, we were just in line with everybody else. And it actually took regulated intervention to say, no, that's not fair for anybody, that's not okay. Now I know the way those negotiations went and change that came out afterwards is, you know, some people have felt uh, you know, that the change may have gone too far. But to my mind, there are very few people who disagree that we changed our mind around what was acceptable, what was fair, what was reasonable. The other reason why people say disagree is that value for money and a profit margin obviously isn't the only measure. And uh, just because something has an attractive claim ratio, an attractively low profit margin, if it's not the right product, if it's not the right fit, if it's being missold, if it's not understood, if the claim reputation rates are very high, for any number of other reasons that might still be unfair. So I think that big yellow bar for disagree talks to both these ideas. It's actually been a fairly common thread through the survey responses, particularly the, the comments that we need to be careful about focusing too much on just a claim ratio, too much on just a profit margin, that there are many, many, many other factors to take into account. And looking and finding a single number to say, right, that's the problem, that number needs to be higher or lower than that, I think can be quite misleading. Uh, okay. Right, so these are the answers to the questions on the minimum fair risk product claim ratio. The average came out at 47%, but for me, the biggest thing from that graph is the massive spread. There are people who said uh, zero to 11% uh, would be fair. Now, I guess they could be thinking of uh, extremely low frequency, extremely high severity product in some ways, but really, I, I struggle with that a little bit. Um, but there's a massive spread, all the way up to people wanting the, the claim ratio to be 70, 80, 90%. I do a short session in the professionalism course for, for new qualifying actuaries. And I always ask, the, the session is on microinsurance. I always ask, what is a reasonable claim ratio? And these young, smart, recently qualified actuaries, there's usually several people say, 80% feels like a good idea. And it does, right? Getting 80% of your money back, a little bit for profit, a little bit for expenses, that feels like a sensible point. But then what happens as we get a little bit older, we realize maybe the costs are a little bit higher than we thought. And maybe the commission is a little bit higher, and maybe there's cost of regulation, and having to have a head of actuarial function. And then by and large, 80% probably isn't achievable in the individual life space. But there's a very, very broad range there. Uh, 
What's also true is that the younger respondents in the survey, as well as my anecdotal experience from the professionalism course, the younger respondents generally wanted a slightly lower profit margin and a slightly higher claim ratio. Now, is it that uh, they are idealistic? I see they, I'm no longer in that group. They are idealistic, <laughs> or that they get uh, worn down over time and getting comfortable that maybe 50% isn't so bad after all. You know, there are plenty of funeral products where 50% claim ratio, you see like, we're doing pretty well, that's reasonable value. There are credit life products where 20 or 25% claim ratio might look you know, quite good compared to, to peers. Um, we, we'll, we'll touch on that again in, in, in a moment. Then there were some respondents who, as you can imagine, didn't like me very much, were trying to mess with my survey. <laughs> the maximum fair pre-tax risk profit margin is, what, 100%? Now, I don't think we should fixate too much on single numbers. And I think I also had my views changed through these responses, realizing that you need to take a lot more into account, and these are just certain measures. But really, I think anybody who's saying the numbers up at that part over there is, that there's no reasonable way for that product to, to make sense. Um, interestingly, if we uh, remove the respondents who didn't feel it was part of their job to worry about fairness, the uh, acceptable profit margin went up. Uh, bigger pardon, went down. In other words, the people who don't think it's part of their job, uh, they are happy to make more profit. Uh, the average profit margin drops from 27 down to 23. This is the, the average uh, maximum. If we remove all these uh, uh, chances, uh, and also interesting that females rather than males push for better value for policyholders, higher claim ratios, lower profit margins. And that's actually a trend that we've seen throughout it. I mean, I guess I was hoping for something along, the, along those lines, but yes, in general, there was a stronger push for fairness uh, harsh views on unfairness from women than men in the responses to the survey. Um, I was surprised that the non-actuaries were actually more okay with lower claims. Uh, maybe I found all the, the salespeople in the insurance insurance world. Um, UK actually, oh, so the, the, the age impact and the gender impact exist even when you put them together. So there aren't just proxies for one another because again, given transformation and diversity in the industry, uh, the, women are probably slightly younger than men in the industry. UK actuaries were generally ha uh, happy with slightly higher profit and lower claims, but once we remove the age impact, that dis effect disappears. I think the sample of UK actuaries in here may have been skewed a little bit older. Uh, the, the, you may remember there was also a question on first year lapse rate, and there was a lot of comments about not really understanding that, whether it applies, so I actually have left those, the, those out. Uh, these are some of the most important comments. I'm not going to read tons and tons of them too, but I think these are quite useful. It's not automatically fair if the profit margin is, is lower or the claims is, the value of money is higher, uh, but more likely to be fair. So in a lot of my own work, I do use a claim ratio as a measure of, of, of fairness. A product can provide better than average value and still be misleading or lead the insured to believe that their cover is better than it actually is. Oftentimes, the answer proposed to bad value for money, a high profit margin and low claims, is that competition will solve everything. And in some parts of the market, perhaps it does. But in many parts, the ability to understand what is being sold, when can we claim, how that all works, is very, very modest. So I think again, that is probably a, a more significant challenge around fairness than just claim ratios. Uh, that, that goes to the third bullet point as well. And the fourth bullet point, to my mind, is quite a nice summary. 
if it does not meet the need sold to the customer, it is unfair. And therefore, potentially, even if it, if it does meet the need, even if the value for money doesn't seem that great, if the funeral product is a better alternative to the family of a breadwinner having to go into debt just as the breadwinner has died, then maybe there's a reasonable home for that funeral product, even if the claim ratio isn't uh, as high as you might want it to be in an ideal situation. Um, then my favorite comment of all, being sold a Gucci handbag with a 1,000% profit margin isn't unfair, but being missold a fake handbag with a 10% profit margin is. I don't know anything about handbags, so I'm assuming this is true. <laughs> um, so one of the other things I've been thinking about in the last year or so is free will and whether we have it. I'm not sure that we do. Um, so the next little slide or two is going to be a bit of an esoteric shift. And here I'm not actually talking about a policyholder's free will or free choice to be able to take up or not take a policy as they want and therefore we can do whatever we want. I'm more talking about the growing evidence that says that we don't know how and why and when we make our own decisions. Lots of research says that you can find the impact when you scan the brain that a decision is made before you consciously realize it's been made. Which makes it more difficult as an actor to say how you got to your fair, fair claim ratio or fair profit margin if something inside your head is making that decision before you've even realized it. There are famous studies uh, about our uh, anchoring and adjustment, our bias to certain numbers. We know that if we're looking to buy a house, we may be influenced by the estate agent's estimate of what the house price should be. That almost makes sense. We're actually getting some information. You can call it Bayesian what you want. You can understand what's going on there. But it's way worse than this. Uh, a group of MBA students were asked to say what they were prepared to pay for a range of items. I think it was wine and chocolate and a mobile phone and a cordless uh, uh, laptop keyboard, a range of items. But before they were asked to do that, they were asked to state the last two digits of their social security number. This was a US study. The responses were then sorted by social security number, and the top 20th percentile of social security numbers gave higher estimates for all the items than the bottom 20th percentile. Now, I hope you'll be, agree with me that your social security number should not have anything to do with the price that you're estimating for something that you're wanting to buy. But it does, and there are countless examples of this. But the really terrifying part for me is that the price differential, the average price between the top 20th percentile of social security numbers and the bottom 20th percentile was three times. Not 3%, not 10%, not, you know, three times. So basically, we are absolutely rubbish at estimating what something is worth, what is value, what is fair, what's reasonable, and we can have a mind changed just like that. I think we need to be very careful making individual personal assessments around what is fair, because you or I could have different views and both think we're right. We have different views and both think we're wrong. We could have the same view and think we're wrong. Uh, so that's my free will choosing a door. Uh, and it seems like the one thing that we agree on is that we won't agree. The overwhelming majority agreed the different actuaries could achieve different conclusions presented with the same facts on questions of fairness. And again, I don't quite know what to do with it because I get that sense. We can have a debate and my mind will change from one period to another. But without guidance, I really don't know where that leads us. So this is the compass, as the sign for, for, for guidance. 
I don't believe we have adequate guidance. I guess to some extent I take uh, uh, exception to being told that we need to do more about fairness when as a society we haven't been able to put down what I think of as is adequate, sufficient guidance. And this is, I mean, can be quite a personal thing. If I need to go to a client right, and say, this product isn't fair, I'm not going to sign off on it, that's quite a big, bold step. You know? and, I, and I'll do it if I need to. But it would be really great if I could point at an actual guidance note to say, and this is how I got to that point. These are the steps that I went through. These were the considerations that I made. It's not just my view against yours. It would help me to ensure that actually I'm not out on a limb and I'm doing the right thing. But it could also help to raise standards so we're all applying the same set of considerations in the same sort of areas. And I'm not the one being hung out to drive for trying to do the right thing whereas somebody else uh, isn't paying as much attention or got to a different conclusion. So that, that, that really is, I guess, my, my, my plea, if you like. Now, many of the comments basically highlight the fact that guidance would then be fixed and written in ink on a page or in electrons in, in a file. And it could quickly become outdated and inflexible. And the reason, by and large, we've moved from rules to principles is to get away from exactly that. So I'm not volunteering to write the guidance, let's be very clear. I just would really like to have some, some really great guidance that I could apply. Um, with my involvement in the microinsurance committee, we are looking at the need to write guidance for possibly less experienced actuaries and uh, associates, trying to have to apply some of the same issues in the microinsurance world with oftentimes more blunt issues, more direct pressures. And I'm have to think about what we're going to put in there. I don't really see why the wording there should be that much different from APN 106 and APN 403. Um, I've had some discussions with the draft of APN 106 and APN 403, so hopefully I'm not throwing them under the bus. But um, in my discussion with them, I still haven't been able to get a clear view on what that premium difference, differences in premiums must be actually justified is intended. I've emailed the Financial Services Conduct Authority and asked them, and the response is, yes, this is very important. You should consider this within your governance structures which isn't very satisfying. It doesn't help me fulfill my obligation as an actuary in terms of actual guidance. And worse, it seems to me that the most upstanding, most ethical, best governed organizations could end up being at a commercial disadvantage from others. Uh, and you know, I'll throw a bit of game theory there just to understand whether that necessarily is, is absolutely viable. Um, and I'm not alone. Almost half. Uh, of respondents disagree that adequate guidance exists. And in fact, so something like 15 or 13 or 15 percent agree that we have adequate guidance. So exactly where the blue bar uh, uh, lands, I don't know, but to my mind, certainly after having been led through the steps here uh, in the survey, most people feel that we do need more guidance. On the note of guidance, one of my other favorite things to do in, in various forums and professional courses is to ask people if they know about SAP 901 which is one of only a handful of compulsory guidance notes that we have. And I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands and embarrass yourselves, but my experience is usually about 10% of actually actually know what SAP 901 is and that they do need to comply with it. So the other, it's, it's a general guidance note, by the way, on general actual practice and writing reports and doing you know, uh, basic reading and writing, as an old boss of mine used to say. So you probably find many of you are complying with it anyway, but it's kind of terrifying to know that a compulsory guidance note that applies to all of you, probably all of you in this room, and I am guessing that many of you don't know that it exists. So then we have the challenge that we create guidance 
and how do you know whether anybody actually follows it? So maybe there's another challenge there as well. Um, one or two more comments just from the, those that I extracted from the survey. Fair cannot be captured in a document, in a claims ratio or a profit margin. Uh, I guess I would agree, although I think all three of those things could be helpful, could be useful. Um, there's a lot of leeway, but weakness, as, uh, that's not necessarily a weakness, as rigidity will just lead to outdated guidance. Um, and then this next one, frankly, really puzzles me and, and makes me very, very nervous about maybe I don't have a soul or something. Fairness, although subjective, should not be guided by rule and regulation. It should be an inherently professional trait of the actuary. Um, maybe we would like that to be the case. Maybe it all, and we all do have some element of moral compass inside, we say, this is very definitely not fair, and this is very definitely fair. My concern is sort of the 80% of middle ground in between, where the survey respondents themselves also demonstrated that we don't necessarily agree. The other thing that really worries me is the passage of time. Each of us is going to have to make decisions around issues like fairness today and this year. And those decisions may well hold for a year or five or 10 or 20 years. The original product designers of those uh, investment products with those high surrender penalties were working in a world with the zeitgeist that said that those penalties were okay. And then 10, 20, 30 years down the line, they've been judged by a changed society with different views and different perspectives. So again, not only do we have to worry about differences between us here today, I think we need to worry about differences in our views from where we are today, where we might be in 10 and 20 years' time. And at least being able to say, this was the guidance note that was produced, this is where we were, and this is how we got to that conclusion, I think could be helpful. I'm not pretending that guidance note doesn't potentially add risk to the profession by writing down in black and white and red around what is fair and what's reasonable. Codifying it, putting it down, saying we think this is fair, um, it's quite a dangerous, awkward thing to do. But again, if it's hard and difficult for the profession to do as a whole, how's it fair to expect an individual to make that call on their own? This is the, the, the last survey question, and in some ways the most troubling. Are actuaries doing enough to ensure policyholders are protected? Barely more than 10% feel that we are. So we feel it's part of our job, it barely more than 10% say actually we are doing enough. I'm hoping that maybe through some guidance that could be created, this might bridge the gap and allow those numbers to go up a little bit. I don't think we're doing enough. We know it's hard. We know we could easily come to different conclusions. We, we just demonstrated that. We have massively different, different views on what a reasonable claim ratio is and what a reasonable profit margin is. We can't even agree whether those are useful measures in their own right. Uh, we use terms such as actuarial justification without apparently having a clear view of exactly what it means. And an eight-minute survey changed views from how hard or how easy this is in quite a fair number of the respondents. <clears throat> we know that there are different views across gender, which is just one possible slice of society. We know that young people have slightly more idealistic views than, than old. Um, and we view a lot of common practices around price optimization in the last space as unfair, yet they exist. So fair is important, um, and I hope that we don't end up as you know, lone horsemen standing you know, broken and unloved and uncaring as the, the, the fair passes on. Uh, I have unfortunately left a little bit of time for, for questions. <laughs> 
So if you do have any questions or, or, or any comments, I genuinely, I genuinely will appreciate them, although whether I have good answers for you, we'll wait to see. Thank you very much. There's a question at the front, and then two there. It's not a, a question, it's a compliment. When I stood up in front of the podium and urged actuaries, I think the last year before, to do more about thinking about these things, I didn't actually expect to, to see what I, you've presented today. So well done. Uh, and why didn't you ask me any of those questions? <laughs> I thought I was the only one over 65, but no, I wasn't. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, I've done a small bit of work based with my own struggles, but I don't know how much further I am to any answers, which I guess is a challenge. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, David, I'll come out of the closet, and besides being an ABBA fan, um, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the people that co-drafted uh, APN 106, uh, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't discuss this with you before, but um, I guess uh, sometimes you draft a guidance and you don't necessarily think about it as deeply and long as someone who subsequently tried to understand how it applies in a particular context. But when we talk about actuarial justification, my thinking certainly was, uh, first of all, it's got to be statistically credible evidence to support it. But secondly, with a slightly softer angle to it, it's got to be socially acceptable. So. Um, many people may not realize this, but in, there, there are markets where it's considered socially unacceptable to discriminate by smoker status. And of course it is in some markets also by, um, by, by gender, and of course it would also be socially unacceptable to discriminate by race, whether it's statistically justifiable or not. Um, just the other point uh, is, uh, I, I think as actresses we are trained to think concrete and to think about black and white and answers and being right or wrong. And that's why I think we generally struggle as actuaries to, to think about a, a, a concept that is uh, softer and we need to think about it. So for me, fairness is, is, is about uh, almost a way of life. And I think also, just another point to that, um, we need to be mindful not to judge history um, or just people in the past without the historical context in which they operated. I think 25, 30 years ago, it was considered fair to give harsh surrender penalties, whereas now we're not. So we are moving along, and, and, and that sort of supports the argument that, that we're not talking about a, a general set of rules of, of, of what is right and wrong. Final point I'd like to mention is that I think the FSCA is still doing a lot of work on fairness, and there may still be a lot of publications coming their way which may render it uh, necessary for us to consider a specific guidance in the context of, of fairness. Thanks, Alex. <clears throat> a lot of good points. I should also say I did not give a comment to the guidance while it was being drafted. So I also bear a whole lot of responsibility for having waited until it was too late. But the interesting thing for me is that that, that phrasing was there from the old Long-Term Insurance Act. And generally, the, in the life insurance space, has been less of a, a bother. It hasn't been keeping up at night. But now having moved across to the non-life space, frankly, what I think is that the non-life factories, and I include myself there as well because I didn't respond at the time, didn't actually think through what this meant and how it fits in there. Um, I'm a Jeff Lynn fan, so I can equal your, your, your ever. And I think it's really appropriate that we are careful about judging history too, too poorly. I just still worry that you know, the future may, may judge us a little bit. I guess I quite liked your definition of actual justification. Um, I'm not sure if you've still got a microphone with you, but I'd be quite keen to know the answer of 
charging a different premium because somebody is more likely to switch or is more price sensitive or not, is that included in the different definition of actual justification or not? Because I don't think it is and I don't think it should be. Paul, one second. I think, Alex, are you... No, 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 I, I agree, sorry. Um, I, are you talking specifically about um, uh, re re repricing uh, and with a statistical expectation that people will not switch because you have sort of hit that sweet spot of not uh, increasing too much. And, and yeah. more than that, a time for renewal based on whatever data you have on this customer's behavior, you know that they are less likely to be price sensitive and if you put through the 17% increase rather than the 7% increase. Yeah, I, I can't give you an answer on that straight off, not off the bat. I drive a red motor car. <laughs> <coughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the correlation versus causation is an existing issue. Uh, I do t take back to a slightly philosophical view on free will. Um, you know, we, I think we have a lot of sympathy for saying that you don't control the genes that you inherit. And whether it's, you know, chromosomes for gender or genes for certain predisposition to illnesses, how much does it suck that you've been born with a predisposition to be ill and now you're going to have to pay more insurance cover throughout your life for that. And I think that, that, that is quite a challenge. The, the slightly uh, less well-supported view is depending on what we think of free will, and how much free will we really have, if you can't be blamed for anything, should there be any differentiation premium even for smokers? But that's definitely a separate presentation. So, so we have a question there? No. It's more of a... So thank you for a very well-constructed survey that was generate very thought-provoking things. I'm sitting here a bit conflicted. I'm wondering why we're turning ourselves inside out, because this is fundamentally pricing theory. Uh, I saw an article recently, Accenture sold a computer platform to car manufacturers where they arbitraged the price of a car part against the demand for the part uh, to optimize the pricing. So customers don't know what a fender costs versus a battery, and this program maximized profits. They are now being sued by various parties who feel that was the wrong thing to do. And then the other thing is everyone in this room has a smartphone in their pocket. The price you're prepared to pay for that device is way, way past the cost of its inputs. And some of you will have Apple devices, which is three times more expensive than the Samsung device or the, the Huawei device, which are exactly the same function. So it's just pricing theory. And, and I'm, I understand fairness, but then when you look at the consumer, is insurance the biggest thing in their life that's unfair? Thank you. Uh, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that view. Uh, I mentioned the example of the aeroplane seats. There are areas, instances we absolutely completely accepted where it's not easy to get a handle on exactly what's being, being bought. It's not something that can be felt and touched. Um, so I guess I'm, I, I think we need to do more, but mostly I would like us to know exactly what we are doing rather than maybe aspiring over here to an unachievable, dangerous target 
because these questions are not, not straightforward. I know there is one more question. I do just want to uh, also give a, a comment to the financial uh, the conduct authority. I did also ask a question on whether we felt that the regulator was moving in the right direction around policy order protection, and the overwhelming answer majority was yes. Uh, so I didn't include it because it's not as sexy. Um, but yeah, there is generally a view that the, the rules are a move, an imperfect move forward. Although there were also comments complaining about the uh, the, the, the compliance burden and the overly rule-oriented burden. So again, that's not, not perfect, but at least some, some progress. So we'll have time for qu two questions. Uh, this question and the question at the back. Hi, David. Thank you for the talk. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of people's opinion on what is fair and how hard it is to be fair or to apply the principles of being fair. Um, did you look at any past research that's been done in other areas to uh, sort of back or not back or just to see what what's happening elsewhere and what people think about fairness in terms of non-actuarial work um, I did a lot of general reading rather than a detailed work and that's some of the examples of the, the phones and the airline the travel came up uh, and the the understanding of things like free will also came out of that research uh, but no it was very much focused on um, our little world here and the, the survey So I think I would be interested in uh, the behavioral economic portion of it. If someone knew that the way that premiums were calculated are fair, like fair to everybody who is involved, would they be more likely to take up the product or not? Um, and how does that affect their behavior in life sort of thing? Yeah, no, I think that, that, would, be, uh, uh, that would be interesting. The, the behavioral economics of the anchoring and adjustment was an angle that I looked at, but not so much the actual ability to potentially increase the overall demand uh, for, for insurance. Um, so th uh, thanks, David, for the talk. I definitely agree with you that fairness is very complicated because you know, it differs between time and culture and whatnot. Um, if you do take the survey forward, um, and maybe I maybe want to get your thoughts on this, I think it would be very interesting to you know, because fairness is very abstract to kind of define. So maybe if you could ask the actuaries in the survey, you know, what kind of insurance products maybe do you own? And most importantly, what don't you own? Because, like, there's a skin in the game component to that, and that'll tell you a lot of what people really think is, you know, fair, like in a very practical sense. Yeah, well, when you, it's, it's, it's not a surprising comment in, in the survey that was wondering how many people would recommend products that they themselves had developed to their friends and family. Um, it's also uh, potentially an uh, unfair loaded question because in the same way that we talk about fairness being about the right fit or product for person and information and advice, you know, maybe you don't have anybody in your family who needs insurance against alien abductions, in which case it's not really fair to, to use that uh, saying it's, uh, it's not, not good value for money. Right, I think... Is there one hand? Yeah, there's one hand at the back and I think that will be our last um, question, thanks. David, I just wanted to comment on uh, annuity rates, where there are a lot of providers aren't doing income rating. I don't know if uh, it's debatable whether income is under your risk factor under a person's control or not, but so the low-income people with a low life expectancy and high-income people are grouped together, and low-income people are, are therefore paying too much. High-income people are getting away with a cheaper annuity, but also there's, if one provider starts income rating, there's the risk of anti-selection. 
So just to raise that as another issue, or a current issue, that's facing us at this moment. Yeah, thanks. And there are lots of issues where a, a narrow view around what's statistically fair or what might be appropriate, ignoring the other societal issues, for example, around the harder lot in life that women still have. Uh, how if you are uh, uh, relatively poorly educated, you're going to be have lower income and your kids are going to have a lower income. And those are scenarios where we probably need to do more than is fair and more than is appropriate to try to offset some of those differences. I think there are a lot of those examples that we can, can look at and it muddies the water even more, but I believe it is part of the discussion. All right, thank you very much, everybody.